Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Vasilega, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me is Nick Scaturo, RMD from Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Thanks so much for joining us today. So let's get started talking about today's topic, diluent shortages. So what diluent shortages are you seeing at this time and how are they impacting your practice? Well, I think, first of all, kudos to our purchasing and operations group because they've done a really great job at staying on top of this kind of ever evolving situation to the, to the point where the impact is relatively minimal. But specific to diluent, uh, recent shortages that have impacted my personal clinical practice is really this back and forth shortage of sterile water for injection vials and sodium chloride vials. I've also heard about the elicitors and other pharmacy contacts that many institutions are still having trouble with the small volume fluids, particularly the uh, 100 ml minibag plus products. But I think that has, has largely resolved for many hospitals for now, right? Ever evolving, I'm sure sometime in the near future that we'll have small volume fluid shortages again. So just staying prepared and ready for that. Yeah, well, as we were just discussing before we started recording that we feel like these are cyclical things. It wasn't that long ago that we had sailing shortages and we couldn't get bags out to our floors. What has your institution or others that you have talked to done to conserve and prepare for shortages like these? Well, I think, you know, specific to the sterile water vial shortage, we've started using, you know, liter bags of sterile water in our IV room for vial reconstitution to conserve some of the supply for where those pre-manufactured vials are absolutely needed. For my personal practice, you know, push dose antibiotics is, is a scenario where we prefer to have the pre-manufactured vials in the automated dispensing cabinets. Also products that require sterile water for reconstitution, second generation antipsychotics, things like alanzaprazidone in the emergency department. We like to have those sterile water vials on hand so we can get the drug to the patient in a, in a more timely manner. But the inherent risk then of doing these um, kind of dilutions in the IV room is using the diluent bags past their expiration date. So we leverage DoseEdge, which is our IV room workflow software to label the liter bags with, you know, a, a barcode scannable item so that the end user can then scan the bag for it to tell them if the diluent bag is within date, as opposed to kind of the old process of putting a label on it, putting a date, putting a time, and then hoping that the end user notices that as they're doing their reconstitution of all these different vials. Secondly, I think like preparing vials is something that other institutions have done. Luckily, we haven't had to get to that point yet where we've had to kind of, you know, take a large diluent bag and then prepare, you know, sterile water vials for injection and then put them in the automated dispensing cabinets. I think vials is the key word here if you're going to be approaching that practice because you don't want to be putting sterile water in flushes Obviously, there could be confusion with saline flushes and things like that. So if you're having to get to that end of the spectrum, edge of the shortage, then uh, certainly trying to put these, these items in vials is most important. So additionally, I think we've had, like I said, an aggressive and persistent purchasing team. If you don't have one of those, I recommend getting one because they kind of help you stay in front of the shortage and also replenish supply on the back end. 
So this goes beyond just speaking with your distributor and really reaching out directly to the manufacturer of certain products. And that's allowed us to procure medications in a much more timelier fashion. And then lastly, I think the more novel approach to this is developing a predictive model to kind of proactively address drug shortages. And Lou and colleagues from UNC Health actually published an article on AJHP last year that outlined these different variables that they found to be positive predictors of shortage. So this type of information, obviously super valuable to know prior to shortages occurring. For instance, their model suggested that electrolytes were 801 times more likely to go on shortage. Seems like pretty valuable knowledge to have up front, especially on the heels of shortages like sodium phosphate and potassium acetate. So if you can identify those items that are relatively cheap, but also have a relatively high likelihood of going on shortage, maybe that's reason to purchase more, have a backup supply. You know, the man hours that we're dedicating to dealing with shortages on the back end are likely going to offset the cost of acquisition on the front end of those shortages. So kudos to them for being more proactive. And maybe that's the wave of the future here. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, you talk about man hours dealing with shortages. I think, you know, one of the things that we find ourselves scrambling to do often is alternatives in just kind of uh, IV to PO transitions, things like that. So what alternative diluents or methods have you found to get around shortages? Yeah, so you mentioned IV to PO. I think from a clinical perspective, that's kind of been the biggest push here being much more aggressive with that approach. And actually on the front end of things, you know, if there's PO options that are available, they're suitable, they have high bioavailability, you know, a patient can use the gut, then, you know, we should be using those alternatives. Drugs that come to mind, metronidazole, there was recently a metronidazole shortage. So this push at our institution became much more important. And we were giving people PO, metronidazole, even in the emergency department, in the operating rooms, which is unheard of for people to get PO options before before an operation, but it's a suitable alternative and, and you know, conveying that information to staff is important. Other um, antibiotics that you could consider, you know, the same approach with doxycycline, linazolid, most quinolone antibiotics have that same kind of bioavailability that's suitable for PO administration, even up front. And that might save you some, you know, vials of sterile water for injection when you're thinking about reconstituting those products. The other, you know, thing that we've kind of aggressively explored is the world of IV push literally everything. You know, this kind of came about initially with the small volume IV fluid bag shortage. Unfortunately, now we're, you know, reversing our course here because now we have sterile water for injection vial and sodium chloride vial shortages. And that makes this process a little bit more complicated. In my personal practice, this is where we kind of had to switch back and forth between diluents that we're using for push-dose beta-lactams, and that requires changes in the EMR and different education for nursing. We've looked at alternative diluents as well for some of these products, things like cefriaxone, benzathine, penicillin. You can obviously dilute those products with 1% lidocaine, and we've tied our orders directly to the 1% lidocaine for diluents in those cases. Not only a good solution to, you know, lessening your use of sterile water vials, but also good for your patient, right? So less uh, injection site pain with 1% lidocaine. Other medications we've evaluated and then transitioned to push dosing include, you know, levetiracetam, glucosamide, thiamine for doses 200 milligrams and less. We really haven't 
had a lot of evidence that doses greater than 200 milligrams. So we thought it was safest to just use 200 milligrams for thiamine, but those are undiluted pushes, right? So no diluents involved. That's great if you can get nursing to get on board and not dilute them further once they get them out of the automated dispensing cabinet. So again, you know, that's education for nursing because there was a survey that found that 80% of nurses dilute medications that are supposed to be administered push. So if you're using these strategies to mitigate using diluents, but your nurses are still using diluents, it's not really helping. So you need to make sure that if you're instituting these strategies, you're making sure nursing is on board and, and willing to you know, try to use these medications undiluted. But a lot of those things can last and persist after shortages have resolved and maybe help with future shortages because they should decrease IV room workload, right? They can just get the medication out of the automated dispensing cabinet and administer it. It also, in my practice, improves time from order to drug administration, which is sometimes critical, right? You have a seizing patient, you can push Keppra in those cases. And, and I think that might improve patient outcomes. Um, so you'd mentioned switching back and forth between sterile water for injection and normal ceiling to dilute push dose antibiotics. Is there any preference to one diluent over the other? So I think you, you need to operate within the means of the package insert, right? So if normal saline and sterile water can be used for an agent, then it's appropriate to switch back and forth. I think a lot of people get concerned with theoretical increases in phlebitis and extravasation injuries with increasing osmolality, which might be found if you're switching to you know, sodium chloride as opposed to sterile water for a diluent. But in general, IV push, whether it's in D5 or NS as opposed to sterile water for injection is pretty well tolerated. To put some numbers to that, when you're adding D5 or NS as opposed to sterile water, you're adding about 250 to 300 milliosmoles, milliosmoles per liter of diluent to the antibiotic. If you look at the antibiotics osmolality, generally speaking, they range around 400 milliosmoles per liter. And that shouldn't drastically increase phlebitis rates. We're going from about 400 to about 600 to 700. We really do try to maintain osmolalities of less than 600 milliosms per liter for peripheral administration. But if you think back to peripheral parenteral nutrition, right, you can push those rates up to 900, 1100 in some cases. Also, with IV push, you have a high laminar flow rate, and that should mitigate some of those risks that you see with increasing the concentrations. Yeah, I was like, that's exactly where my mind went. I was like, all right, I was like, I was like, but PPA could do we thousand milliosmoles. <laughs> So what tips and resources do you recommend for pharmacy teams related to shortages? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, you know, we live in times of drug shortages, shortages of not just drugs, but all things. And that kind of now comes with the territory of practicing hospital pharmacy. At this point, um, we had this discussion offline before, you know, we've all had that unpleasant experience of telling a doc, hey, you can't order that medication simply because we don't have that medication. Now, I think COVID has exposed some other, you know, supply chain issues, and maybe that's a more tolerable conversation to now have. But I think the biggest tip I have is at all costs, you, you have to try to stay ahead of these things. You know, when it's made known to you that a drug is likely going to go on shortage, develop a plan to address it. You know, don't wait until that drug is on allocation. Do not wait until that drug is completely out of stock and then scramble to develop some plan of action. So our team of clinical pharmacists, our operations managers, our system administrators, we meet on a weekly basis and expected drug shortages, always a topic of conversation. So I think it's important to have all those people in the room 
because all of those people have a different role in mitigating you know, use and addressing shortages uh, with their practices. As far as resources go, you know, personally, I use the ASHP drug shortages page to obtain most of my information surrounding shortages. The FDA also has a, a website available. However, you know, I find the ASHP page to be a little bit easier to navigate and also maybe a little bit more comprehensive in some areas. Our operation team, they rely heavily on weekly information that's shared by our GPO or group purchasing organizations, things like Vizient. So if you're part of a group purchasing organization, you know, leveraging the information that they're sharing, they always send out drug shortage information, usually before the shortages are occurring. And I'm sure pharmacy managers could get any interested team members on those listservs to receive that information as well. Nick, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for taking time on your busy day to chat with us about diluent shortages. For our listeners, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources and the ASHP shortage page. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on emergency medicine, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Community Center, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday, where we'll be talking with ASHP content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.